live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And good evening, Rabbi Hirsch, for the second time this week. Lucky listeners, lucky me. Welcome back to part two of our very important series on Sinai, Torah, Menashemaim. So last week we explained how any theory about Torah being man-made, even if the events took place thousands of years ago, still have to fit within the rules of historical and philosophical theory. You can't just make wild claims. And therefore, the critics need to answer a number of logical questions to establish their case, like you very eloquently explained. We also spoke about mass revelation as being unique to the Jews. Could we start this week by you explaining why is mass revelation such a big deal? Was the sort of thing that you stressed, I would say, most last week? So basically, all the religions in the world rely on one thing, and I mean all of them. Believing the bloke who talks to you. He claims... (laughs) God spoke to him last night. Maybe, maybe not. I have no way of knowing. I either go along with it or I don't. Mass revelation means the leader doesn't have to prove anything. You were all there. Right. But surely there has to be another religion that has made a claim of mass revelation, seeing that that's our golden ticket. Well, a number of uh, ancient people and religions make a sort of claim saying this or that God appeared to thousands of people in Central America, in the Far East, but... Never with the outcome that makes personal demands of my life, which are intrusive. The Rabbi Gottlieb argument was if it will strongly impact my life. But if it's just an alleged divine encounter with no rules or demands, fair enough. I'm prepared to go along with it. What do I lose? What do I risk? Nothing. It's like a magic show. Yeah, which is why none of these religions then go on to make the claim that mass revelation will never happen again. It could, but not the type of mass revelation that happened in the desert, where the Torah is telling us it will never reoccur, as we find in Devarim chapter 4, Posuk Yud and Posuk Lamad Beis and Lamad Gimel. That's a very challenging, in-your-face claim. But maybe God only does speak to one or two people. Okay, so why would there be revelation at all. What what is the purpose for a truth to emerge? If God would then only speak to one person, there is the challenge for this individual to convince everybody that it actually happened in a marketplace where everyone is making exactly the same claim. So now the entire outcome is down to this individual's, I don't know, personality and charisma, and it's going to probably die at birth. I mean, I don't know if you're aware, every year they produce an encyclopedia of religions, thousands of them, and many don't make it into the second year. Sheker and MS Truth and otherwise will be determined by numbers, which is why Christianity and Islam jumped on the bandwagon of Judaism. However embarrassing it is for them to start their religion from ours, right? Really not cool. So it is... a a mass revelation argument. Of course, beyond why it should happen this way is the claim we have made that it will never be repeated, which is the main thrust of the argument. As requested last week, we asked the listeners to hang fire on their questions, which indeed they did. We got way less questions than usual. They're waiting for episode two. So I've prepared some of my own, which will hopefully cover 
most of the questions being asked, but of course we're still open at the end for more. Um, maybe Moses just got lucky. In other words, maybe there was an event that took place and it happened to be at the time that he was able to make use of a, of a hurricane. And he explained it away as, you know, the word of God and people accepted it and believed it. And that was the sort of the lucky coincidence that he had. So there are two answers to this. If it's a natural phenomenon, then natural phenomena repeat themselves. And how come nobody else got this lucky break ever in, in the thousands of religions, in the thousands of years across the entirety of the world? But the second bigger question is, if they didn't actually hear God say and in this earthquake, then the claim isn't God spoke to us and said. It's the same claim as God only spoke to me. And I'm telling you what he said because you lot never heard it. Yeah, but maybe details were added over the years. Maybe details of stories, details of commandments. I mean, you said last week it's either true or false. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Maybe it's partly true. As above, which part was there and which part was added? Was it the vague part that doesn't anyway contain any commandments? Um, or is it the part that does contain commandments that you have to give up your life for? Is it the part that happens that says that mass revelation happened or the parts that don't? In other words, is it the wrappers and the, like the whipped cream or is it the actual cake? Let's put this in practical terms. Let's say he came up with 10 out of 613 commandments, which just, by the way, was one of those 10 circumcision. Because if it wasn't, it's very hard to introduce later on. Okay. Speak to Paul. Did he also invent the stories? In other words, is he talking to people who have gotten together because he got them out of Egypt miraculously or not? Did he invent the miracles and the plagues? And then subsequently, who is the guy who introduced the other 613 commandments and how? You see, when the question is vague, it sounds strong. But the moment you start defining the question, that's when the question falls apart. Which bits did he invent at the time? In fact, underlying almost all of these questions are the same four points. How, why, who and when? How did they slip in mass revelation and how come no one else has managed? Why invent so many commandments? Who did it? What was the motivation? It clearly wasn't for power because this person is anonymous. None of us have ever heard of him. When? We've only got that 1335-year window. So what part of history was he in and how did he explain amnesia to his audience? Okay, I'll try and process that quickly. Um, how do we know that those weren't customs that they were already doing when Moses came along? And maybe he just sort of put in a framework of religion, but these had been traditions passed down. Same problem. Did the miracles take place? Did the sea split? Did the Nile turn to blood? Is he just writing events or inventing them? If he's inventing them, then we have all the problems we've already mentioned. If he isn't inventing them then what we're saying is it all happened a hundred years earlier. So we're shifting revelation back by a century. It's true. It's just, it, it just didn't happen then. So then all the questions are relevant to that event a hundred years earlier, which must have been very impressive, etc., etc. But what if the fact that Judaism has so many rules is the actual reason that got preserved? Because people, people need restrictions, people need laws. Or maybe the amount of rules was sort of a, a double bluff, let's say, to show it must have been real because it's so detail-orientated and so many rules. Who could have made this up? Okay, you're saying people need rules. To what degree? In a, in a world where none of the other religions had any rules, paganism, 
150 new intrusive rules. Sounds like quite a bit to me. How you testify in court, how you slaughter your animals, how you shave, how you plough your field. It's endless, even if it's only 150. And therefore, Double Bluff runs out of steam after 150. It doesn't need the other 463. It's overkill for a religion that I'm inventing. More than that, as we said last week, it will actually backfire. Besides, you've got all the other questions. Who was it, etc., uh, etc. Et yeah, but maybe people were illiterate. They had no idea what was written in Torah. They just accepted it, and then they... Right. Torah is not simply a dusty book accessible to the priests. It's not Christianity. The Torah for the Jewish people was the basis of their social life, their economic life, their legislative life, trading in the market, their daily and weekly calendar, their married life. Everything is in the Torah. It's not just a, a collection of, of ideas, of, of, of morals. Right. So, okay. You know, they might have been illiterate, but they needed to know what was in it. Right. Going back to your question of why would people believe it all a thousand years later, couldn't it be that they were in such desperate times? It was a terrible time in history. People needed desperately to believe in something. And, you know, he's telling a great story of revelation. People accepted it. They were desperate. Okay, so this is a question about the Fred scenario. The problem is that we don't ever have that recorded. When did it happen? that people were this desperate. Secondly, going back to what we said, how desperate would you be to sign your entire life away to something you know is a lie? Now, you know it's not true because no one ever heard of it. And then once again, all the same questions. Why, who, etc. But we've touched on Fred, so let's now turn to the academic world, which claims not only that the Torah is deliberate man-made fabrication, but that it was reinvented four times. If you study Bible studies in university, your degree will be learning and writing about this whole thing is simply fiction, like Harry Potter, but written there here for political reasons and power. Now, the origins of this theory, practically speaking, are in the 19th century, mainly with a guy called Wellhausen, who authored what is called the Documentary Hypothesis, a theory that the Torah was invented by four, perhaps five people, not at one time, four authors over a period of around 500 years, and each wrote a different section of the Torah. And it's called J-E-D-P. Each letter is an author. The reason behind this theory was that two academics came across a problem. God goes by different names in the Torah, and the Torah uses different styles in different sections of the five books. The story of the creation, for instance, doesn't have the same vocabulary or structure as the uh, laws of paying your workers. And a third problem is that the same stories appear in the Torah twice, uh, Bereshis, uh, the flood. Okay, now, crucially for us to know, none of these questions are new to the 19th century. All the Rishonim deal with this Rashi, Nachmanides, Ramban, all the time. But of course, these Bible critics didn't know that because they're Christians who've never opened a Chumash in their lives, only an Old Testament, so they have no access to anything really except the superficial text itself. Anyway, they voiced a golden rule. An author always writes in a singular style. If there are different styles and different names for God, there must have been different authors. How did these four authors meet? They never got together. They lived centuries apart from each other. You, you can look all this up. Just type J-E-D-P into Google. 
So the way it works is about 2,850 years ago, 400 years after we say the Torah was given on Sinai, a group of people, possibly in southern Israel, although it wasn't called that at the time because the Israelites didn't exist as a single nation, according to them, remembering that, you know, all these stories of Bereshis and coming out of Egypt with the Ten Plagues, it's all a myth, it's a legend. So these primitive tribes living in what is called today Israel created text for their tribe. They wrote a story and perhaps a few commandments in order to make the tribe cohesive. And this scroll was accepted. And in this scroll, their god, a, a fictitious god, because the, you know, the J god doesn't actually exist, this god that they worshipped was called Yudkevovke or J. And their scroll was created by all the psukim in Chumish that we have today, which contain the J name of Hashem. I mean, at least in the first two books of Bereshus and Shmois. Those verses were authored 2,850 years ago. Who was the author of the scroll? Why should people accept stories which they knew weren't true? We're not going to go into that because we have no idea. But they did accept it. Now, Sefer Vayikra, Sefer Devorim is not in there. This scroll is mostly story-based, had beliefs in God, and it's, let's say, 20% of what we call today Chumish, and they accepted it. Now, there's no chapter one in Bereshus, there's no story of a six-day creation. There was a creation, we don't have any details. Okay, that's the first scroll, J. About 100 years later, another group, probably identified with the tribes living in the north, also came up with a set of beliefs and stories and legends, and their god was called E. Elohim. So any verses in Bereshish and Shmeis which have the name Elohim were written by the second author, who has no connection to the first author. You know, it's not his student or his school of thought. This second scroll is being developed in a different part of the country, and there are different beliefs in the two scrolls. Some of the stories are the same, because the two sets of tribes were related back in time. They have a common ancestry. But you've got, you know, Avram bringing his son Yitzchak on the Akedah. It's in both scrolls, but they finish differently. The god E apparently didn't believe in child sacrifice. So for E, the Akedah finishes with Yitzchak alive. The god J did believe in child sacrifice. So Yitzchak is killed on the Akedah. You didn't withhold your son, which means you killed him. And then sometimes, you know, one of the two scrolls has a story that the other hasn't, like the golden calf. Now, of course, you're about to get a rather large headache when within the same paragraph you have both names of God. Who wrote that paragraph? The J people or the E people? And by the way, this headache starts very early on because chapter 2 and 3 of Bereshis, of Genesis, only have the name of God as Hashem Elohim, both together. Okay, so... To resolve this tension, and also to explain how we have one scroll nowadays which has both J and E in it, the 19th century Bible critics assume that somehow the Jews, maybe a hundred years later, fused both scrolls together. Even though there were glaring contradictions between them, and even though it's their core religious beliefs and narratives that they're fusing together, nevertheless, they made them into one cholent, and in fact, that's probably the first use of the word trullant in Jewish history is in the 8th century BCE. This is all searchable online. Don't take my word for it. The motivation for them to accept it was unity. 
Even though the two were never properly unified, the two kingdoms went to war with each other, they had two places of worship, they're not unified by land or religion, and even though you don't find such a thing happening in the ancient world, that in order to keep people happy, they coalesce two very different religions together into one. You know, one religion dominates the other. You don't find a fusion. But you know something? I'm reasonable. And I'm prepared to accept this implausible scenario because it gets far worse. They're teaching this in university, yeah? What happens next is stage three. Another hundred years later, at which time the Jews still don't have 60% of Chumash, nor is there a book called Yeshua or Shreftim or Shmuel or Molochim, the Book of Kings, none of it. You know, there might be some legends swirling around about Samson, but for instance, King David, he never existed. I mean, in more recent times, that was in the 19th century, what they said, nowadays they say, well, he did exist, but he was a minor figure. There was never a united monarchy across the country. David Melech Israel is a fiction. So we can't even sing the song. No, you cannot <laughs> sing the song. It's heresy. But in 621 BCE, there's a need for power. So they created a third book called D. And which name of God does D represent? No, not a name of God this time. D is for Devorim or Deuteronomy. And really, this is the centre of Wellhausen's theory. This book is really what made Judaism happen, according to him, because it's got a whole load of commandments. I mean, we're going to come back to why it's utterly implausible that Sefer Dvorim would have come into being at 621 BCE. We'll come to it at length, but just as a teaser, Dvorim says you may not add or subtract any commandments. Dvorim also says the commandments that I gave you at Sinai 700 years ago will never be forgotten. Yet this book of Devorim has just been handed to me, and it's full of commandments that are new, uh, that the people have never heard of, and in the text it says they've always been around. But somehow, D got the Jews to accept it, uncritically, a new unknown book making its first appearance. And by the way, circumcision may not yet be part of it. Anyway, whoever wrote D also wrote Shreftim Shmuel Malochim, very busy B. And a, yes, a BD. <laughs> Allegedly, this was written by King Yeshio. As an aside, it's interesting that this king had such a major impact on Judaism because I would assume that most of our listeners couldn't tell you a single thing about Yeshio Amelech. But according to biblical critics, he was major in our history, apparently. And the Possek of Shema is also in Zavarim. Yes, possibly only written in the 7th century, or invented, should I say. Why did they pick Yeshayol? Why does this scroll have an author? Okay, so it's based on the story with Yeshayol in Malachim Base, where it says that he found the scroll, Sefer HaTorah, and he tore his garments and he initiated the destruction of idols across Judea. This is the basis for D. It's interpreted to mean that he invented an entire scroll, even though nothing in the verses suggests that reading. And even though the verse says he didn't, he didn't find the Sefer Torah, it was Chilkiyoh. But leaving that to one side, because as I said, the real arguments against D are yet to come. So fine, they've got now three parts of the scroll. So it's now, you know, 600 BCE, but they still don't have the Chumash as it exists nowadays. They've, they've got, you know, 80%. And 150, maybe 250 years later, 
Wellhausen theorizes that there was a fourth edition called P. This is after the exile and return to the second temple. They're still adding and creating the Bible. They're, they're very inventive, these Jews. Although nowadays some people theorize that Wellhausen was wrong and that P was written before D. I mean, it's all pure conjecture and theory. There isn't a shred of actual proof for any of this. I mean, I guess in the world of secular academia, you have to be really open-minded. <laughs> what about P? Is that also not a name of God? No, P means priests. The Kahanim decided that they wanted in on power as well. So they added the whole section, Sefer Vayikra. Now, once again, when the Kahanim presented it to the people, they didn't say it was a new book created in, I don't know, the 7th century or the 4th century BCE. No, they claimed this was part of the old book of a thousand years ago. And the fact that you've never seen these words and chapters before, somehow they passed it off anyway because, you know, anyway there was animal sacrifice, so they just added bits to it. Although by bits, I mean hundreds of sentences. Okay. And these gullible, stupid Jews, for the fourth time, had their religion completely altered and they accepted it uncritically. Even though, as we said, no one has ever said about the Jews that they are uncritical, that they are gullible, and that they're not stubborn. But somehow, just at these four junctures in history, they became all soft and easygoing, and at all other times their normal sort of national traits reasserted themselves. We've grown a lot over the years. Oh, yes. So, in summary, a Jew, or some Jews, they wrote four separate books, each at least 100 years apart. Yep each with different instructions and texts, and the Jews accepted the whole lot each time an amendment was made. You know, just give me the latest. Basically. Now, the only problem is we haven't finished. You can't literally split this book into four very neat quarters. It needs editing. So in order to edit it properly, there was, according to most theories in the JDP world, a redactor, an editor, who brought it all together, thankfully, so that finally we have a single book of complete fiction called Chumish created over a 700-year period, which was foisted on the Jews, and no one noticed. So who's this editor? Okay, so he is identified by most critics as Ezra. Now, what he does is not just cut up stories. He edits single verses. In, in chapter 19 in Shmois, where the receiving of the Torah takes place, it's a classic example. Literally, you have a half a verse was written at a particular time in a particular place, and the second half of the verse is written, you know, 100, 400 years later. In the year 850 BCE, this verse was four words long. After editing, it becomes much longer. It's a bit like Pinocchio's nose. He <laughs> is literally sitting there with a pair of scissors adding words here, instructions there, removing contradictions. Now, this claim is of deliberate fraud, not simply mis-editing a text, and on a national scale, which you do not find anywhere else 2,000 years ago. Which other religion engaged in this anywhere in the ancient world? Religions at the time simply absorbed other religions into theirs. Only the Jews apparently did otherwise. And there, as I've said, there's not a shred of hard evidence for these theories. It was the most unbelievable cover-up. It would put Stalin to shame. Four completely different texts brought together without a single dissenting voice or recorded opinion anywhere. And, as I mentioned, Torah isn't simply a dusty book accessible to the priests. It's the basis of social life, economic life, married life. How do you change it each time without anyone noticing or protesting? But you know something? 
I'm not going to dispute these Bible critics on the absurdity of their claims, which should be enough. I'm going to dispute the philosophical and historical theories which they have to propose to be able to make these claims. First of all, there are four books and five authors. Lovely. Who wrote J? No idea. Who wrote E? No idea. Who wrote P? Uh, a Cohen. Who? Mr. Cohen? Mrs. Cohen? Family Cohen? No idea. I will quote Richard Friedman, whose heretical book on the topic, called Who Wrote the Bible, was on the New York Times bestsellers list. He sold a quarter of a million copies of it. And he says, there is still much to be discovered about who wrote J&E. I bet. Um, we do not know the precise dates when they lived, and we do not know their names. Yeah. In fact, nowadays, Bible critics are aware of the problems in giving two authorships, one to J and one to E. Let's hear from Friedman again. The question remains as to why so many similarities exist between J and E. They often tell similar stories. They deal largely with the same characters. They share much terminology. Their styles are sufficiently similar that it has never been possible to separate, separate them on stylistic grounds alone. Hang on a second. They do share terminology? They do share styles? The whole basis for documentary hypothesis was that different authors write in different styles. So maybe they aren't written by two authors after all. Although ultimately he remains in a state of deep denial. I quote him again. The stylistic similarity of J and E is that rather than J being based on E or E being based on J, both may have been based on a common source that was prior to, to them. That was like an old traditional cycle of stories about the patriarchs and exodus, which both the authors of J and E used as a basis for their works. What, like, like A? Or maybe, for once, Friedman called it for what it is. Maybe there was only one scroll which contained both J and E. It's called the Torah. Why not simply say that what we have in front of us is the original source and that J and E are no more than a figment of the Bible critic's imagination? If you see identical twins, you assume a common parent. That's J and E. Now D. Why D can't have been written in 621 BCE? Because how could a writer in the 7th century BCE make the laughable claim that God has multiplied you and today you are as numerous as the stars of the heaven when 10 of the 10 of the 12 tribes were taken into exile a century earlier and haven't been heard of since? You know, this is supposedly being sold as an eternal document of God of how powerful the Jewish nation is. If already you're inventing text, keep the problematic bits out. <laughs> right. What about the mess revelation issue? For yeah, the sure. That, that's still an issue of Bible critics all the way through. But I still haven't dealt with the real fundamental problems of Bible criticism. I'll start with two very important points told to me by Rabbi Daniel Rowe. The first is that there's no vocabulary in Chumash or in Nevi'im which is Neo-Babylonian or Neo-Persian. Meaning as follows. When a nation is surrounded by people speaking a different language, there end up being words added to that language which were originally foreign. 
These are called loan words. It happens in every country, in every age. It's scientifically proven. The Jews in Israel, therefore, would have had foreign words which became part of the spoken and written Hebrew language during the Babylonian Persian period. And by definition, some of that would have appeared in this newly created Tanakh when it was written by Yeshio or Ezra, but we do not find any of it. So, you know, you're going to say, but maybe this is a double bluff by the authors. They worked hard at keeping these uh, Neo-Babylonian words out in order to pretend that it was written in ancient times. That doesn't work. They would not have been able to. I'll explain in modern day terms. If you were to attempt to write a document in Shakespearean English or Old English, you would struggle. It's an almost impossible task. Why? Because the way language and vocabulary evolves is almost untraceable. You wouldn't be able to tell me today which words entered the English language 180 years ago and which entered 380 years ago. Nowadays, we could compare the text. Yes. So nowadays, we've got access to so many documents from the 16th and 17th century that you could make a very good attempt at writing that way. You could reconstruct the language, but you would not be able to get 100% accuracy without, without computer so software, without AI. 2,500 years ago, you wouldn't know what the ancient dialect of language of 500 years earlier was. The current language that you would be speaking would have been infused with foreign vocabulary, yet Tanakh is free of anything but ancient Hebrew. In fact, the only loanwords we find are Egyptian 12th and 13th century BCE, which shows that it was written back then. This is a very strongly textually based argument. His second point is that there's no mention of Yerushalayim in Chumash. Now, since Yeshio and Ezra were creating and redacting text because they wanted to highlight the centrality of the temple and of Jerusalem, this is important for their power grab, you need to make sure that the name of Jerusalem appears in the original text. You want to highlight to your audience that Jerusalem has been central to Judaism for a thousand years. You'd point out that Avraham went to Yerushalayim. But in the Chumash we possess, Yerushalayim is never mentioned at all. All you have is the word Shalem once. So reading the Chumash will give you the idea that, you know, the city of Shechem is important, Hebron is important, but not Yerushalayim. And, you know, the people that you give this book to in the 7th century will read through this newly invented text and they'll say, oh, there wasn't really any importance in Yerushalayim. Maybe we should move to Shiloh or other places. And why didn't you put Yerushalayim as the city of the divine presence? Let's face it, in every other book of Nach, that's what it says, which all indicates that Chumash was written at a time where Yerushalayim had not yet become important. Now, turning to, therefore, the critics, can you make a full philosophical and historical claim? The answer is no, to the degree that on Wikipedia's webpage, it now says, as part of the explanation of JEDP, the consensus around the classic documentary hypothesis has now collapsed. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that they have become religious, God forbid. They still believe, and I use the word believe advisedly, because basically it's now an article of faith for these academics, that the Bible is written by multiple authors. But now, anytime you ask a straight question, 
they say, well, you know, maybe it's and maybe it's it's a bit like, you know, your questions at the beginning of this uh, series. No, no offense taken. No, right. Because if you ditch Wellhausen's original theory, you've got now other questions to answer. So there currently isn't a single comprehensive theory. You know, they now propose maybe there wasn't one J author and one E author. Maybe there was J1 and J2 and J3. And maybe there were two authors for E. I kid you not. So now we're talking about eight, nine revisions. So what is the defense nowadays? The defense nowadays is keep it vague. Biblical criticism is a moving target. You attack this book, that book says otherwise. And those who accept it nowadays accept it in broad terms. But broad terms avoids the issue. Get specific and then we can talk. Then we can analyse your theory. Keep it vague. It, it's meaningless. It's, it's totally speculative. I mean, to put it into context, they've never found a scroll which is pure J text without E text. Or, or, and D-text and P. Nor are there any groups that we know of who, you know, remained as J and E-ists and refused to become D-ists, or who created, you know, breakaway branches of Judaism based on J, E, and D and refused to accept P. In other words, all Jews, every single last one of them, accepted the newly revised, expanded, totally changed version, even though it contained details they knew were untrue, every Jew accepted it. No, no. You know, it's portrayed, and this is so ironic, it's portrayed that we, you know, these, these biblical believers are fanatics and that we will turn anything to our advantage, whereas the academics, they're simply doing their job, they're looking for results, and they are studiously neutral in this game. Is that why they don't apply the rules of logic and historical precedent to their theories? They are absolutely desperate to avoid the Bible being true, because if it is, they have to believe in God. And they're out of a job. Much more than that, their whole lifestyle is at risk. It's a high-risk game, an either-or game, and they're determined not to lose. You know, they will tell you that, that Divrei Hayom in the Book of Chronicles have some names or dates that seem contradictory. Yes, it's true. And that Chizkyo and, and Ezra oversaw great change. It's true again. But that's all in our text already. There's nothing new there. And neither of these two introduced 200 new commandments with new texts and made claims of mass revelation. In other words, 3% of Tanakh, let's say, might yield questions, even problems. But the Bible critics make 93% out of it. It's, it's ridiculous. It's got no scholastic basis. And one other thing, if P or Ezra is making changes after the Jews came back to the second temple, 90% of the Jews were never in Eretz Israel. They remained in Bovel. How did he in Israel ensure that all of them fell into line with his changes? He had no way of forcing or convincing them, especially, and this is important, especially since the majority of the Jewish scholars remained in Bovel. So, they, you know, they would have gotten in the post all of these hundreds of changes to the text from Jerusalem. And they would have said, you know, very nice, but no one asked us. Take a running jump. This peace scroll is meaningless to us. And basically, overall, how likely is it that a nation 
would accept a flawed document as its fundamental theology. A flawed narrative with with multiple revisions over 600 years. You're basically describing biblical critics as a cult. Yeah, the cult of Bible revisionists. Yeah, haven't finished yet. There are other real problems. This claim that inconsistency of style and text are a proof that a work was written by more than one author. It's inadmissible. In other words, they are saying that an author never uses more than one name of God or more than one style. And in fact, they claim the only way we know that J is a separate scroll to E is because each only uses one name of God. Use of more than one name of God never happens. I want to explain this logic, this logical fallacy in the following way. When the light switch is down, the lights are off. That's point one. Point two, the lights are currently off. Point three, therefore the light switch must be down. Let's apply this to biblical criticism. Point one, an author only uses one style. Point two, the Torah has multiple styles. Point three, therefore the Torah must have been written by more than one author. This is circular reasoning. There could be a dozen reasons why the lights are off. Maybe there's a power cut. It's ridiculous. And so too, there are many reasons why Torah has multiple styles. Your premise is only true if this book is written for one purpose only. If it's a law book, you'd only find legal types of terminology and style. Or if it's a book of legends, you'd only find story-based style. But the story is, the, the, you know, the Torah is all of this, plus many more. It's got legal stuff, narrative, rebuke. And your theory isn't true for your own JEDP. Let's look at P. P uses the name of Hashem as J 300 times in Vayikra. But in the entire chapter one of Bereshis, P only uses the name of Hashem as Elohim, E. I thought you said that the same author never uses two names. That's what you base your whole biblical theory on it. But P does. So, you know, it's ridiculous. Now, Beyond the fact that the Torah is covering different realms and areas of Judaism is the fact that there is an accompanying oral law, which means that the text is written totally with that in mind. And this isn't some sort of, you know, cop out. There isn't a single part of the Chumash that makes sense without an accompanying oral law. I'll give you an absolute example. At no point in Chumash, when giving us the commandment, to carry out bris milah, to circumcise our sons at eight days old, does it say on which part of the body to perform circumcision? The word arel is translated nowadays as circumcised, or uncircumcised rather. It, however, occurs three times across the 24 books of the biblical canon um, related to a part of the body. At one stage, it talks about the Jews having uncircumcised hearts, Maybe we should do open heart surgery on a baby. Yeshaya, the prophet, talks about uh, the Jews having uncircumcised ears. Maybe we should cut off, a, you know, an earlobe or go Van Gogh. <laughs> and Moses, or Fred, talks about himself having uncircumcised lips. That's why he can't talk to Pharaoh. But no one carries out brismila on any of these parts of the body. Why not? 
Another example. Let's take the first sentence in the Chumish without the oral law. Translate for me, please. Bereshis bora elikim eshashamayim ve'eshaoretz. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Wrong. Bereshis <laughs> means in the beginning of. Bereshino means in the beginning. Bereshis is a construct. So the very first sentence of the Chumish reads, In the beginning of, God created heaven and earth. In the beginning of what? No oral law, no answer. The words themselves are not enough. Then there is the fact that Torah has to accommodate what are called chiastic structures. I will post this on the JLE webpage because it's going to take too long to explain what it is and you need to see it visually. And the Torah also has to accommodate paradise. In other words, the verse needs to render a meaning at the level of pshat, meaning, remez, illusion, drush, and seid. So it needs to be read at these various levels, not just at the superficially translated level. And this is primary. So this will be posted on jle.org.uk forward slash podcast. Yes. In addition to everything else we have discussed, there are other issues with biblical criticism. Archaeology, for instance, is making serious inroads into it. 20 years ago, you could still say that King David never existed. Nowadays, there are at least three archaeological references to to him. They're debated, but it's not easy to debate it. Omri shouldn't have been a powerful king, but he's there on the Moabite stone in the Louvre. Near Beit Shemesh, there are two excavated cities. Both had approximately 8,000 animal bones. The one that we say was Pelishti, was Philistine, had a high percentage of pig bones. The other one that's only a few kilometers away, that we say was Jewish, contains eight out of 8,000 pig bones because they were Jews. Similarly, in Kirbet Kiafa which shows that Jews were living in cities, fortified cities, in ancient times, when, according to biblical critics, they shouldn't have existed. Wow, that's powerful. One last thing, Rabbi Hirsch. Why does Hashem have various names in the Chumash? Oh, uh, very simple. God doesn't have any name. A name is a description. It's a label. God is infinite. Infinity can't be labeled. God's names are attributes within our relationship. And they change as the relationship changes. So it's the way we understand or view God at that present moment. Relate, yes. Or how God relates to us, yes. For instance, we never find the name Elohim when talking about the offerings in the temple and the Mishkan, because Elohim is God as the attribute of, of justice, of law, of strictness. And unlike all pagan religions, we do not believe that Korbonis are brought to appease an angry God. The word korban is karov, to draw closer to God. Hence, in all of this text, we only have the yudke vovke, which means chesed and mercy. It is the opposite of what sacrifice means in English, which is why it's a bad translation. So that the names of God that appear in the text change due to very specific sets of patterns and criteria. It's crass ignorance, it's crass arrogance to analyse Torah without real background or learning. It, it, it's shocking. So at the end of the day, the proposition proposed by us, the Orthodox, sounds quite reasonable. Correct. 
And I don't just mean theologically plausible. I mean it's a much more reasonable argument to be making in terms of philosophy and history. It is the more plausible argument of how this document called the Chumash came into being. Their idea is full of twists and turns and maybes, and they're all completely dependent on each other. You take away one domino, the entire edifice collapses, and the edifice is made of a bunch of dominoes constructed on the House of Cards. Now... It has to be understood, it has to be understood, that the struggle over the origin of the text of Torah was and is not just an academic one. It is foremost a battle between divine authority and human autonomy. Starting with Spinoza, people were looking for ways to liberate themselves from the biblical worldview and its divine demands. And since it is basically the biblical text that made humankind submissive to divine authority, you need to start an assault on the biblical text itself and strip it of its divine nature. And therefore, what you will find from this divine text is greatly dependent on the question of why you're looking. In the last 200 years, in an attempt to become part of the secular world, many Jews looked towards biblical criticism as a very welcome and forceful source of delegitimization of tradition. It allowed Jews to turn their backs on tradition, and the secularization of Torah led to the secularization of the people. That is what is at the heart of all of this stuff. Now, in this presentation, I have used an amalgam of ideas, ideas of Rabbi Gottlieb, Rabbi Kellerman, Rabbi Berger, Rabbi Becher, Professor Berman, Shmuley Phillips, and others. I just don't want this one to end. I've just got more maybes to uh, frustrate you and, right. and carry us through the night. Okay. Can I just end with one? I understand it's extremely unlikely, unbelievably unlikely. But maybe that's what happened. Maybe somehow Moses worked his way into everyone just buying this. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this is what Rabbi Gottlieb once said to me. If you want me to absolutely prove beyond a shadow of a doubt from a laboratory perspective, as I said at the outset, I can't at least not physically. Spiritually, I know that Sinai happened. It's because my soul was there. But that's not the criteria that we are using in today's discussion. We're using about proof. So I said, I will prove beyond reasonable doubt, which is what I've done. If you want absolute laboratory proof, I can't. And on the contrary, if you are at the opposite extreme, if you want to live in Never Never Land, where you accept there might be fairies and there might be aliens, that's something you can choose. I can't talk you out of it. It is, however, completely inconsistent with all the other decisions that you make in life, and that is hypocritical. Also, if you're wrong, this is a major gamble, because you're losing out on eternity. And then what is going to come a person's way isn't necessarily ideal, shall we say. And therefore, at the very minimum, it's worth looking into to see whether employing the decision-making factors that one does in all other major decisions in life, on balance, how would you proceed with this one? 
Would you join the millions who for thousands of years, including Maimonides and Rushi and the, the Vilna Gorn, chose? Or will you persist in your single-minded, ostrich-like approach to Revelation at Sinai? Choice is yours. If a person is open to the possibility that God exists, then we can talk about it in terms of probabilities. Obviously, if the emotional answer is that God doesn't exist, that it's just too fanciful, then there's no point pursuing the question. Wow. What strikes me is that even in today's age where atheists are all the rage and they're coming out there and they're speaking from their medical and scientific perspective, they also don't have laboratory proof because the question of the origin, for example, just haunts them all. And they just, uh, they're asking us as well to go with them on that journey because it's, right. you know, proved without a reasonable doubt, right. which which you've, I believe, outproved them in, in right. many so forms. So even something like evolution is still a theory. It still has more weight to it than this stuff, but it's still a theory. It's not proven as such. Right. I think this lecture has to be given over in, in Oxford and Harvard and all the major universities of the UK. And As I said, a, they, have to first, tidal wave. they have to first be open to considering that God exists because they are agenda-driven, agenda-led. If we're talking about an objective, open-minded group of people, yeah. Well, let's but, see if one of our listeners has the reach to, <laughs> to make this happen. Yes, we, we can. Combine it with a trip to Geniza. Right, we shall see. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. Really appreciate all the, I speak on behalf of the listeners, the immense amount of effort that you put into collating all of that and creating such a easy to listen to and yet so fascinating podcast. And yeah, maybe this is the first of a few slightly off the course history. Well, that well, not we will do them sporadically, sporadically. But, but I would urge you to listen to these two a couple of times. I remember sort of almost fighting against it and saying, but the maybes, you know, yeah. that, that's how our minds work. This does have to be listened to. I'm sure there's going to be many questions and follow-ups, which right. can all be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. We might even have to do a special episode to answer them. But Maybe, or although the next four weeks are going to be on Holocaust-related topics as we enter the period of the three weeks. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch, and have a good night. <laughs>